This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Hi, Jen White here. Before we start the show, the end of the year is coming up and we're reflecting a bit here at 1A. We've loved bringing you shows about pretty much everything in 2023, from interviews with your favorite authors and celebrities to going in-depth on the latest news stories. We've poured our heart into every show, and we're excited about everything we'll dig into in 2024, hopefully with your financial support. This is where we want to say a big thank you to our 1A listeners and anyone listening who already donates to public media. Your support makes independent and accurate journalism possible. We prioritize facts, context, and different perspectives, and we're beholden to no one except you, the public. And to anyone out there who isn't a supporter yet, right now is the time to get behind the NPR network, especially with the NPR newsroom gearing up for an important election year. Supporting public media now takes just a few minutes and makes a real difference in what's possible moving forward. Make a tax-deductible donation now at donate.npr.org slash 1A. And thanks. Today we're wrapping up the year in music, and it was a big year for the band Boy Genius. That was the track $20 from indie rock trio Boy Genius, Julian Baker, Phoebe Bridgers, and Lucy Dacus. Their album, The Record, was nominated for Album of the Year, and they received five Grammy nods altogether, a first for the band. Another first this year, the song Ella Baila Sola by Esleban Armado and Peso Pluma went viral on TikTok. Bella, ella sabe que está buena, que todos It became the first regional Mexican song to ever reach the top 10 of the U.S. Billboard charts. And in 2023, what was old became new again. You got a fast car, and I want a ticket to anywhere. Maybe we make a deal. Maybe together we can get somewhere. Any place is better. That's country singer Luke Combs covering Fast Car, the 1988 hit from Tracy Chapman. His version of the song went platinum in July. After the break, we meet our panel and discuss more of the year's biggest moments in music. Later on, we revisit our conversation with Victoria Monet. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay with us. We've got a lot to get into. Joining us from Washington, D.C. is Stephen Thompson. He's a host, writer, and reviewer for NPR Music, and also co-host of the NPR podcast, Pop Culture Happy Hour. Stephen, welcome back. It's great to be here. Also joining us from Las Vegas, Nevada, is Taylor Crumpton. She's a journalist and writer. Her work has appeared in Essence, The Washington Post, and on NPR. Taylor, it's great to have you back. Thank you so much for having me. And with us from New York is rapper, singer, writer, and occasional 1A guest host, Dessa. She's also host of the Deeply Human podcast. Dessa, it's so great to have you. Hey, glad to be here. So Stephen, first, how would you describe this year in music? 
Well, it's hard to sum it up in in one word. You, you hit on some of the the themes overall. Uh, one of the one of the trends that really jumped out to me is that so much of the music that dominated 2023 came out before 2023. The shelf life of music feels like it's gotten longer and longer, even as the shelf life of things like movies and TV shows feel like they've gotten shorter. So a lot of the hits in 2023 uh, were from albums that came out last year, like SZA and Taylor Swift, uh, or our older songs like Luke Combs's cover of Fast Car, uh, or even when you're talking about holiday music, the, the, you have the, at the top of the Billboard charts, instead of that perennial Mariah Carey song, you have an even older song uh, by Brenda Lee, Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree, from 1958. And so it just felt like a lot of the churn of, of new music got overwhelmed by the, the um, continuing success of older music. And obviously you can credit or blame <laughs> streaming for that, but, but it's been an interesting phenomenon that there haven't necessarily been a ton of like bi- albums that were complete juggernauts that came out in 2023. A lot of the music was older. Dessa, one of your top picks this year was from band The Beaches. How would you describe their sound? Oh, I am a big sucker for The Beaches. I think it's kind of, it's rock. There's a lot of kind of layered vocal harmonies. But I think what attracts me to a lot of their lyrical approach is that it's not... It's not the kind of gendered voice that we're used to. You know, I think of like um, some of their kind of quote unquote like feminist anthems. They sound kind of gritty in a way that reminds me a little bit of like, um, I don't know if you watched Pen 15, but I remember reading an article about the grossness of girlhood as it was relayed (laughs) in, uh, you know, in its, in its true, full kind of confusing, weird ambivalence and uncertainty. And I think the songs that, um, the beach is right. You know, in some ways it does have this kind of like bopping girlish rock to it, but the lyrics are like drinking beers in the shower and, and there's a, yeah, there's a grossness that feels true to life to me that I really like. Well, let's listen to the song Blame Brett from the Beach's 2023 album, Blame My Ex. Now, you, you share that you hear some similarities between this song and another big track this year, Miley Cyrus's Flowers. What's the connection? What do you hear? I do, and this is no shots fired at Miley. I think she has a phenomenal voice. I'm a fan. But she put out that song, Flowers, this year, which is essentially, God, I can take myself out. I don't need a guy to do it. And I think that this is a more interesting take on that same kind of vein. So when we hear, um, when we hear the beaches singing about what it feels like to take yourself out, single, it's a little more rugged. Like, there are fewer flowers and more slammed PBRs, and I dig that. <laughs> Well, Taylor, one of your top tracks this year was the song On My Mama by Victoria Monet. Her new album, Jaguar 2, is up for seven Grammys. What's appealing to you about Victoria's sound? On My Mama plays reference to Southern hip hop. It pays homage to the HBCU college circuit in Atlanta, Georgia, as well as breathing new life into I Look Good, a 2009 single from Charlie Boy. So the song not only is a homage to Victoria Monet, who wrote this while she was experiencing postpartum depression, but also reminding listeners of that feel good era of the 
early to mid 2000s, you know, it is an homage to everyone who was outside in jersey dresses and white tees and do rags, but also modernizing it to Gen Z, who right now is dressing just like everyone did in the mid to early 2000s. <laughs> so I think it's a good cultural conversation and exchange of generations of black music. Well, let's take a listen to On My Mama from Victoria Monet. Now, Taylor, she's having a, a big, big year. Seven Grammy nominations, um, two Grammy nods for this song, for Best R&B Song and Record of the Year. But she's been in the business for a long time, for, for over a decade. I mean, what do you make of this? I don't want to call it her, her, her bursting onto the scene because she's actually been on the scene for a long time. But what do you make of this moment for her? You know, I think all of us in America, we love a Cinderella moment. And as you said, Victoria Monet has been in the music industry since I believe she was 14 years old and was signed to a girl group. So she has, you know, written Grammy. She was pretty young. She was 19. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, she has spent decades in the background as a songwriter, as a producer. And she has taken all of those years and decades into experience into taking this moment for her own. And I think we can see as listeners and critics that she is well-versed in so many genres of Black music, and she brings that enthusiasm, that charisma, that personality, and that choreography to really distinguish herself in this market, that she's a pop star, that she's an R&B star, and that this is her moment, and we're also appreciative of her bringing all of that to mainstream music. Stephen, I want to go to one of your top songs of the year, Get Him Back by Olivia Rodrigo. Her sophomore album, Guts, came out this year. Describe the album for us. Well, Olivia Rodrigo kind of came up as like a young. She you know kind of came up in like the um, the Disney cinematic universe. You know, like like as a as a child star, and then you know had this massive breakthrough in 2020 uh, with her first album Sour. And with Guts, you know, she she kind of adds a little bit more kind of spiky pop punk to her to her sound. And I've I've been really fascinated by the way that she's managed to make this transition from like teen pop star to like um, you. You know, to to kind of like a rock star who's who's incorporating the influences of of a lot of like alternative rock of the last thirty years. I think it's really interesting that when she announced her tour for twenty twenty four, one of the opening acts that she's bringing on tour is the Breeders, uh, you know, which was like a really really big alternative rock band in the nineties. And I just think she's doing such a smart and savvy job of reaching um, not only like a young pop audience, but the parents of that young pop audience. I, it's a amazing how often I hear to people here you know I talk to people in their 40s and 50s and even 60s who love Olivia Rodrigo who love Olivia Rodrigo's music she's managed to kind of become a, 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 a star across generations in a really interesting way we'll be back with more of the biggest songs of the year and maybe some you missed after the break this message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average Get your quote at Progressive.com and see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. 
Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Greenlight. Want to teach your kids financial literacy? With Greenlight, kids and teens use a debit card of their own, while parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and savings in the app. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash NPR. Adessa, one of your top songs this year is Sure Thing by the artist Miguel, originally released in 2010. But now the song has been given new life, sped up. Let's hear it. Okay, so what do you like about this version of the song? Okay, first of all, just to echo what Stephen Thompson said, it is weird, like, how many songs that have been out for a minute, and then not only that, were celebrated in their prime, have then kind of, like, resurfaced, you know, to the top of our musical awareness. And I think, in part, when I heard this song, I thought, wait, I know this song already. Uh-huh. What's happening? This song is too... F- this feels like Kanye hit it, you know what I mean? <laughs> Sped it up for a vocal sample or something. Is the whole song like this? <laughs> And then doing a little digging, like realizing that, yeah, I think in a lot of ways, you know, we find ourselves in a musical environment that's a little bit less the product of like DJs curating, right, our listening, mm-hmm. as it is to this sort of crowdsource through, through TikTok. And that song had a big dance challenge moment. And it resurfaced on the Billboard charts, earning a spot higher than its original position on the Hot 100 that it had in 2010 and its release. And of course, a part of me probably likes it because I'm a writer. <clears throat> and <laughs> I love the fact that like the chorus of that track sounds like somebody assigned a simile and metaphor exercise to their high school <laughs> class. It's great. You know, you could be the cash, I'll be the rubber band, you'll be the mat, I'll be the fuse, like it's just entirely like a, a simile and metaphor exercise. And it's catchy. I still like it. Yeah. Taylor, Taylor, how do you think TikTok contributes to songs going viral, even if they weren't released this year? Thinking of On My Mama and even Pound Town, these are songs that were not, as Dessa said, you know, curated by DJs, but through TikTok, right? This is where music is being in conversation and understood and brought to the mainstream. So I think we're seeing this kind of evolution of TikTok dominating Billboard and Billboard having to be in response and conversation to TikTok being the one driving these music conversations online and offline. I mean, Stephen, it makes me also kind of harken back to the early days of music videos. And it seems like a not a an inheritor of that legacy, but maybe something that is reshaping what it means for an album to have visuals. These are sort of crowdsourced visuals. Maybe it's a dance challenge or, or people just using the sound of the song under a certain type of video on on um a video on a certain topic or something like that. But how are you thinking about the way the visuals of TikTok are driving songs to to the forefront of our awareness? 
Well, it's putting the audience at the forefront of that process. You know, in the, in the age of, uh, of like early MTV in the 80s, the artists and the labels, you know, were, were kind of curating what you saw with the music. But TikTok, that's in some ways out of the artist's hands. And I think that's really interesting. And I think another way that TikTok is changing the shape and the sound of music is that it's, it's um, incentivizing songwriting that is excerptable, that allows you to like take a piece piece of the song and and kind of set your TikTok to it. And so like having a song, like for example, uh, Pink Pantherus and Ice Spice had this huge hit uh, with Boys a Liar Part 2. And like you can take pieces of that song, pull them out, you know, take 30 seconds of that song and it kind of stands on its own. And I think some of the craft of pop songwriting has, has changed quite a bit in response to TikTok. I feel like in a lot of ways, songs are feeling, uh, like at least pop songs, like big hit songs, are becoming kind of shorter and more fragmented and more excerptable in ways that are changing the way music sounds. I saw you nod uh, as Stephen was talking, Dessa. I mean, you're somebody who writes and performs. Are you considering the TikTok of it all? I mean, the honest answer, yes. I think Stephen makes a point of which musicians are well aware. To be extra honest, am I a little salty about it? Yeah. (laughs) Why? Why salty? Because it feels like, it feels like, a song is already a pretty brief unit of art. You know what I mean? It's not an epic painting. It's not a triptych. So the idea of making sure that you're also writing like a ringtone, ah. you know, something that sounds fresh in like 17 seconds intervals, it's asking for a lot of sugar and not very much medicine. But on the other hand, I do like the idea that it becomes more democratizing, right? Like TikTok, individual people are picking instead of maybe risk-averse record execs, and that's cool. Now, the indie supergroup Boy Genius is made up of Julian Baker, Phoebe Bridgers, and Lucy Dacus. They received five Grammy nominations this year, including Song of the Year for the track Not Strong Enough and Best Alternative Rock Performance for the song Cool About It. So let's hear some of Cool About It. I can walk you home and practice method acting or pretend Being with you doesn't feel like drowning Telling you it's nice to see how good you're doing Even though you know it isn't true Stephen, give us some insight into Boy Genius's sound on this album. Well, I mean, Boy Genius is made up of three uh, individual songwriters who have very distinct songwriting voices and three pretty large and passionate fan bases, uh, Phoebe Bridgers, Lucy Dacus, and Julian Baker. And what's interesting to me about, about Boy Genius is that they manage to sound like the sum of their parts in really, in really intriguing ways that still kind of highlight each person's individual contributions. And one of the things that was really heartwarming about Boy Genius's success in 2023 is that so much of, of their story and so much of the kind of narrative around Boy Genius's success is that it's rooted in the, in the friendship of these three women uh, who love and support each other, love each other's music, support each other's uh, careers. And, and like that's really kind of come through in this record. This is a record that is kind of of and about friendship in really compelling ways. And of course, it does, their success does tie in part into a larger story that we'll probably mention, which is just the massive juggernaut of Taylor Swift and and, you know, Boy Genius toured with Taylor Swift and I think reached a, a huge audience through that that machine of Taylor Swift fandom, um, you know, in ways that, uh, that you know, were very, very beneficial for Boy, for Boy it, Genius. As you said, these three artists, so they have careers 
of their own. How did this group come together? I think through that friendship. I think they met in the wild, in the world, um, decided let's let's try something together. They put out an EP a few years ago that w- with just like six songs on it. That that EP kind of highlighted their individual voices a little bit more. It kind of felt a little bit more like t- they each got two songs. Uh, and this record it really kind of builds on that to where each song you can hear all of them. Mm. Is there any risk in in artists coming together to form, you know, sort of a super group when they have established careers on their own? I, I don't necessarily. I mean, there's always, you know, risk. If you put out a, a work that everyone hates, it can it can blunt your momentum. But in some ways, if it doesn't work, then it just feels like kind of a side project. It feels like a vanity project, and people are like, okay, when's the next you know record by so and so? And, you know, so, so they were able, you know, they were able to have, I think, success as a group that is even greater than the success they were having individually. Okay, Des, I have to ask you, as, as the, the rapper and singer on the panel, if you could form your super group. Who would be in it? <laughs> I think I would not be worried about, you know, blunting my own success by virtue of, of pairing up. I mean, you know, one of the rappers I think we might discuss a little later is Little Sims mm-hmm. from, from the UK. I think it would be pretty rad to tour with her. Yeah. Uh, Taylor, you were watching Women in Hip Hop this year. What big stories were you watching? You know, this year we saw an abundance of mothers in hip hop, you know, from bongos to on my mama to ski, all of these billboard chart topping singles are by moms and they are moms who are teaching us and telling us, you know, just because I am a parent does not mean that I cannot express my sexuality, that I cannot express, you know, still feeling confident in my body. And that was felt by, you know, not only millions of listeners in the United States, but abroad. And I just can't wait to see how this trend continues to evolve in 2024 with the release of Pink Friday 2 by Nicki Minaj, who has her son Papa Bear featured on a track, but also has tracks like FTCU, Everybody, that are reminding us, you know, though some of these acts may have debuted when they were single, they're still bringing the heat to the club, to Billboard, to TikTok, to all of these platforms and doing it with their children. Well, you mentioned bongos. That's from super duo Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion. Let's listen. This was also the 50th anniversary of hip hop, Taylor. How are you reflecting on the role women played in this this incredible culture? You know, for the past 50 years, hip-hop has been, you know, referred to as a boys club. You know, you think of the Drake, the J. Cole, uh, Jay-Z, but now we're seeing so much abundance, especially in diversity. You know, Little Sims was mentioned, that's a UK rapper. We have rappers here, Ice Spice, Flo Millie, uh, wherever you are at in the United States and the world, there's a woman rapper who is dominating and not only in music but pop culture and fashion i'm thinking of koi the ray who's been sitting front row at paris fashion week and milan fashion week i think there is such an abundance in diversity in women in hip-hop and we're thinking about class and race and gender and immigration and and sexual orientation the next 50 years is going to look more like 
gender and sexual diversity than we've ever had before in the genre. However, I think we also have to be reminded that this year we did see, you know, a lot of increase on social media towards women in hip hop. So the genre has to figure out how it protects and honors its women while also making sure that they're not subject to attack and critique online. Mm. Odessa, what about for you? Yeah, and you know, I I realized that I hadn't tracked in this in the way that that Taylor had mentioned, like how many mom, not just women, but like moms, were really dominating our um, our airwaves, and I. I dig that. And I'm, I'm kind of like staring into the distance, thinking about all the album covers that I've seen, even just while waiting in line, you know, at the supermarkets, right? Like all splashed on, on magazines. And at the same time, I guess part of me, I love the expansion of the circle to say, hey, this body looks great. I'm taken. So I don't have to create and continue to create the idea. I shouldn't say taken. I'm dating somebody. I shouldn't have to create the impression of constant sexual accessibility to have a career. But I do like the idea of somebody on the cover of a magazine, you know, looking like, hey, I'm not, I'm not actually interested in the sexualization part. I think there should be room for that, too. So I love the idea of whether you're single or you're married or you're a mom or you're not. You know, I, I, I like the idea of seeing more women who are also... Um, involved in in hip-hop culture in kind of like less sexualized Mm ways. I I, I dig that, yeah. Yeah, and I also want to mention, I I think, because time has no meaning, I think it was this year, Taylor, that Missy Elliott was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Queen Latifah um, was one of the Kennedy Center honorees. Do you think there's just this revisiting and truly acknowledging the role women have played in this space? Of course, I'm reminded of the recent Grammy salute to hip hop on CBS. And you saw Queen Latifah, you saw Raw Digga, Yo-Yo, all of these elder women in hip hop who, you know, are responsible for this expansion we have receiving their flowers and being in conversation with this current generation. You know, at the top of this year, we lost Gangsta Boo. And she is a Memphis rapper that really set the foundation for every black woman from the South to contribute to hip hop. So to start the year with her being not a part of this conversation physically, but seeing the remnants of her legacy being carried on by this younger generation just shows how hip-hop keeps on respecting and honoring those who came before it. We'll be right back. We've got a lot more still ahead. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. This message comes from Wired. 
On Wired Politics Lab, you will be guided through the exciting, challenging, and sometimes entertaining vortex of internet extremism, conspiracies, and disinformation. Listen to Wired Politics Lab wherever you get your podcasts. Odessa, we mentioned this artist, and it's another favorite song of yours. It's a track called Gorilla by Little Sims. She's a British rapper, singer, and actress. Let's hear a bit from the album, No Thank You. The keys to my blood clot, memoir, big time driller, monkey to gorilla. Who is this woman that I'm seeing in the mirror? Drink 42 and smoke cigar, name one time. That bass? <laughs> It's just like, it's amazing. Now, the song actually came out last year, but the music video came out this year. And it is, it is riveting. I mean, I watched it once for reference, and then I was like, oh, I've got to watch it six more times. I, I totally, and I think it's one of those songs that after you've seen the video, it plays in the movie theater of your mind every time you hear the song. You know, it's just a really, like, iconic visual. Came out, that song, like you said, in the last gasps of last year. The video came out in June. And I remember like my phone blowing up, you know, getting a text from Joshua and my band going, you have to check this out immediately. And then another one within the next 24. And I think it's, for me anyway, what makes this track go is all, it's just style points, yeah. right? It's not, it's not the way that that bass is written on paper. It's the way that that bass is played, you yeah. know? And, and she's just got X Factor cool all day. You know, I think the... The video to me kind of reminds me of that sort of like low-key understated swag of mm-hmm. like a Kendrick Lamar or, you know, a childish Gambino in their best filmic appearances. It's really strong. Well, we're holding out for a 2024 Little Sims Dessa appearance together. Let's you go. Said. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was another big year for Bad Bunny, the Puerto Rican singer and rapper. Stephen, what records has Bad Bunny broken again? <laughs> it's hard to even keep track of the streaming records associated with this guy. Uh, you know, he put out a record, another 81-minute uh, album, and it, it set 2023's mark for the most streamed album in a single day on Spotify. And Benito just kind of keeps coming back and keeps dropping these, these you know, epic albums where, you know, it's, it, there'll be 22, 23 songs on it, and it sounds like a greatest hits record. Uh, and it's, it's remarkable to hear it. Well, let's hear a clip of Monaco from this album. Okay, so this album is 81 minutes, so just a little bit longer than a lot of albums by about 20 to 40 minutes. It has 22 tracks, Stephen. I mean, what is he pulling from for this album? What influences do you hear? Well, I mean, a lot of, you know, a mix of, of uh, um, trap music, hip-hop, pop, R&B, um, you know, it, he's, he's pulling from a, lot, from a lot of different places, and it all just sounds distinct to him. And I just have to say, before, before we move to the next thing, I want to hear that Little Sims and Dessa record so bad. <laughs> and, and, when we, and we have not even mentioned, by the way, that Dessa herself put out a terrific yeah. record this year called Bury the Lead, which I just loved. All right, Dessa, we're putting it out there for 2024, (laughs) you and Little Sims. I don't know if she listens to the show, but if she does, get your people on it. We got three three signatures on this petition, and one of them is mine. Let's go. (laughs) Well, Stephen, um, we get back to Bad Bunny. What what are we hearing in this album, and and where is he pulling his influences from? Yeah, I mean, I was I I kind of touched on it a little bit. I mean, it's it's pulling from trap music. It's pulling from uh, you know a lot of the like the sounds that are you know cumbia and reggaeton and you know that that are 
you know, that are big in Puerto Rico, but he's just pulling from all over the world in, in ways that are, that are just, you know, spe- you know, that are speaking to everybody. And it's just remarkable because he put out this album last year, Un Verano Sinti, which was just this complete juggernaut of a record. It was like 22 hits deep. And then to have him already come back in 2023 with another record, I feel like in a way, this record didn't make quite as big an impact because people were still digesting Un Verano Sinti. And so, so um, you know, Nadi sabe lo que va a pasar mañana didn't have quite the same reach, even as it was breaking Spotify records. It's like he's just managed to drop such a such a glut of great music that it's hard to even um, that it's hard to even pick out your your favorites. Mo, you know, Monaco, the song we played, is probably my favorite track on the record, but there's ton to choose from. Well, there were a couple of. You know, not so important tours this year, she said sarcastically. Beyonce's Renaissance Tour, Taylor Swift's Eras Tour, different styles of music, but both huge. Stephen, what are some of the parallels you see between the two tours? I mean, the par- just in terms of parallels, it's just that each one seemed to um, seem to just like kind of break records set by the other one. You know that that they were they weren't nec- they were somewhat in conversation with each other in terms of like um, you know one would uh, I think it was Taylor Swift was first uh, to like make an, make a deal with theaters to um, you know to show a, a film version of the concert and kind of cut this deal with AMC theaters to to screen the film. And then Beyonce kind of used that same template to put out that Renaissance film, um, you know, which, which I saw in, in IMAX on yeah. opening night. And it is a, you know, just a maximalist spectacle. I think, you know, just in terms of, in, in terms of parallels between them, they were just, they just like blotted out the sun. They were just these massively, massively lucrative um, tours that were just like really drove the the cultural conversation, musically speaking, throughout the summer. You kind of had these these three juggernauts all kind of, kind of dominating the conversation. You had the Taylor Swift uh, eras tour, the Beyonce Renaissance tour, and then the Barbie movie. And the, um, and those, you know, those three juggernauts were just three of the biggest stories in music this year. Well, Speaking of Beyonce, Taylor Swift, and Barbie, it was a big year for music in Hollywood. And I'm bad like the Barbie. I'm a dog, but I still want to party. Pink felt like I'm ready to bend. I'm a 10, so I pull in a can. Like Dazzy, Stacey, Nikki. That's the track Barbie World with Nicki Minaj and Ice Spice. The soundtrack from the movie includes artists like Lizzo, Charlie XCX, Ryan Gosling as Ken, even has a cover on the soundtrack. Taylor, talk about the role music played in this movie. You know, Barbie, girl, Barbie was the, I feel like the word of the year. 2023 was the year of the Barbie. Girl Corps took over, Barbie Corps took over. And who's a better ambassador of Barbie in music than Nicki Minaj? You know, when she debuted, one of her alter egos was a Barbie persona. She created dolls and so many rappers have, you know, Asian doll, cash doll, have modeled that after Nicki Minaj's doll persona. So for her to be this culture juggernaut and forced to team up with Ice Spice, who, as we know, last year took over with Munch and bringing, you know, drill into conversation, mainstream music. For those two to combine, it wasn't only a passing of a torch, but a reminder of the power of women in music, the reminder of the power of women in hip-hop and music, and how they have a unique ability to, I think, entrance women across the globe, which is 
kind of the thesis of Barbie, right? They're this pinnacle, this model of femininity, of, of feminism, and they're doing it in a song which was viral on TikTok, which I know we brought up earlier in the conversation that was an excerpt in a ringtone. You know, I think just hearing that song, I'm enamored with flashes of rose gold and pink and people dressing up and going to the theaters. Another member of the text club writes, an artist that deserves lots more love and recognition is the California band Ginger Brute. Indie pop creator Cameron Lee describes it as aggressive elevator soul. Huge city pop vibes, very chill. Check out Loretta and Juba, Juba District and Loneliness. I, I love that people come with so many artists that maybe you've heard of or haven't heard of, but you end up with a pretty good playlist as <laughs> you're kind of rounding up the music for the end of the year. It, Stephen... Award season right around the corner. What artists are being considered for Grammys that you're paying attention to? Oh, man. Well, I mean, I'm excited about Victoria Monet. I was really glad that Taylor talked about her up front. I think she's she's certainly primed to be certainly in position to win Best New Artist, which, as you kind of discussed, is kind of ironic given how long she's been around and with and, and in terms of just how many uh, really famous artists she's worked with. Uh, I think she's primed to have a big year. SZA has has a ton of nominations. I do wonder about, uh, you know, if, if it's just becomes another Taylor Swift coronation. There have been a number of Taylor Swift coronations in past year's Grammys, and it's hard to deny that she's had a, a, a very, very massive year year. You know, Boy Genius is heavily nominated. It's it's going to be interesting to see how it shapes up. You know, the, the the Grammys are such an interesting barometer. I know, you know, a lot of people are will, will tell you like, oh, the Grammys are meaningless. The Grammys are stupid. And, and the Grammys are definitely stupid. But, but it is interesting to see the way the music industry likes to... Um, likes to anoint ambassadors. The Grammys, you know, often give the same artists awards over and over again. And it's interesting to see which artists the music industry has decided it wants to serve as avatars for the music industry as a whole. And so that's one of the things I think you can glean from the Grammys. So I haven't necessarily sat down to like game out all my uh, my predictions, but you, you can't go wrong predicting, you know, big things for Taylor Swift uh, and, and never sleep on John Batiste. The Grammys love John Batiste. Well, we talked to John Batiste earlier this month about his uh, documentary, American Symphony. You can find that conversation at the1a.org, along with a conversation we had with Irish singer-songwriter Hosier back in March and the Oppenheimer movie composer Ludwig Gornson back in July. Again, just head over to the1a.org. Peter emails, speaking of women in hip-hop, Soul Child put out a great record called Something Came to Me. Another great rapper from the East Coast named Jordan released a killer track called flow. I'm curious to hear from from each of you, just, I'm still feeling like we're kind of in this post-pandemic world. Yeah, we had some big tours, but it feels like there's still a bit of an adjustment phase happening. And how you think perhaps the music industry or the way artists are approaching their work, how it's been reshaped. I mean, Dessa, as, as an artist, I'd love to hear from you first. Yeah, you know, I think, um, you know, I, I didn't pick Boy Genius as, you know, one of the kind of pivotal 2023 for me because I knew that they'd be taken by somebody else. You know, that, that group has just exploded. But one of the things that's interesting to me is to see how young their fan base is when you compare it to the actual, like, aesthetic. Like, it's when I imagine youth and rebellion and what it feels like to be 15 years old, right, 16 years old, I think that looks and feels differently now for teenagers that went through the pandemic staying at home for 12 and 13 and 14. And you find in clubs even like, hey, we're having a great turnout. 
and for better, but most likely for worse, a lot of our live music scenario, if you're not if if you're not one of the juggernauts like Taylor Swift or Beyonce, it depends on booze, which mm. sucks, right? So if you've got young people who are drinking less going out to clubs, you've got to rearrange the music business around that, which is a change that's long overdue, but it is complicated and it is entrenched. So I think not only the aesthetic of TikTok, but the patience of like teenage music that we're finding, which has a lot of folk elements that it didn't, you know, 10 years ago and 15 and 20. That's interesting to me. And I think we're going to decide and learn how much as a culture we return to the clubs and how much maybe we decide that we like our movies at ho- movies and our music at home. You know, do we do we Spotify and Netflix more often than we go to the dive bar and to the theater? Mm. Stephen and Taylor, I want to hear from you too. Stephen, I'll come to you first. Yeah, I mean, I definitely want to echo a lot of what Dessa was saying. I think one thing that that has really jumped out to me is I, it feels like it's gotten harder for new artists to break through. I, I feel like we have, you know, we have our juggernauts. There's kind of a musical monoculture in a way where there are a few stars where we we, we wind up hearing about every single thing they do, and every time they they put out a press release, it it <laughs> you know it triggers a new you know wave of of news cycles dedicated to it. But if you're a new artist, if you're trying to break through. If you're trying to be heard for the first time, you have to be uh, resourceful and lucky in a whole different set of ways because you're not only competing with those juggernauts, you're competing with, you know, people wanting to stay at home. Mm. You're competing with old music, as we've talked about. Yeah. You know, like all of a sudden you're competing with Brenda Lee, you know, a song <laughs> from 1958. You're competing with Luke Combs singing right. a song from 1988. So, so it's, I feel like it's harder than ever for new voices to break through, even as it's become democratized. Taylor, in just a sentence or two, anything to add? Ski. I mean, a new artist that took over 2023 was Sexy Red. So even though they are in competition, all these cultural juggernauts, I've seen more new artists dominate and stir conversations online. And they're showing that they're here and that they deserve to be on the charts along with the Taylor Swift and the Beyonce's. That's Taylor Crompton, a journalist and writer covering music, pop culture, and politics. Stephen Thompson, a host, writer, and reviewer for NPR Music, also co-host of the podcast Pop Culture Happy Hour, and Dessa, a rapper, singer, writer, and host of the podcast Deeply Human. Thank you all. Let's take a quick pause here. When we return, we revisit our conversation with Victoria Monet. We've got a lot more still ahead. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit bluehost.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Made in Cookware. Did you know that many popular dishes in Tom Colicchio's craft restaurant are made in Made in Cookware? Maiden supplies chefs with high-end cookware because Maiden makes exactly what demanding chefs look for. When you level up your cooking, remember what great dishes on menus worldwide have in common. They're Maiden Maiden. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from the 18th until the 27th. Visit MaidenCookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N Cookware.com. <laughs> There are only about 173,000 jaguars left in the world. Even rare is the black jaguar, which makes up about 11% of that population. 
To the Mayans, the jaguar was more than an animal stealthily roaming the jungle. It was a deity, representing strength, ferocity, and courage. For singer, songwriter, and performer Victoria Monet, that's a meaning she holds close to her heart. Now, more than a decade into her career, Victoria and her latest album, Jaguar 2, are up for seven Grammy Awards, including Best New Artist and Best R&B Album. caught up with Victoria Monet earlier. We talked to her about her career as a multi-talented performing artist and her latest album full of R&B soul sound, Jaguar 2. So first of all, Victoria, welcome to the program. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So I just have to run through this this list. <laughs> Your most recent album, Jaguar 2, is nominated for seven Grammy Awards. <laughs> that includes Best Engineered Non-Classical Album, Best R&B Album, Best R&B Song, Best Traditional R&B Performance, Best R&B uh, performance, best new artist, and record of the year. So congratulations. <laughs> but how are you feeling? I am so grateful. Um, I just feel so much gratitude. And it feels like such an affirmation to like childhood dreams, to visions that I've had, to things I've written down. So it's been really, really special, um, especially having all of those nominations at once (laughs) it's just like when I heard the news of just the first one I was elated and then it just kept happening (laughs) so um, it's just been a beautiful experience and um, I feel very blessed I think there's this myth in the entertainment world about the overnight success right the person who just sort of explodes onto the scene and suddenly they've they've made it And when I look at your career and everything you've done to lead to this moment, how are you reflecting on your path to where you are right now? I try to look at it as as if I'm a plant almost Mm -hmm. or a tree um, where you plant the seed and the roots have to take time to grow and spread and go in the right directions and you water it and you water it and then suddenly it sprouts above ground and I feel like I'm just now sprouting. I feel Mm. like um, there's been a lot of work that's been behind the scenes and if you were to dig, you would find out where the roots have gone or, or where they've been. But I'm happy to be above ground and sprouting and seen and you know, starting to flourish. I know there's so much more that I want to do and that I have to do. So I think, but we're, uh, we're in the above ground phase and I hope that the tree and the flower keeps just growing high. Tell me about that seed. Where, where was it first planted? I would probably say childhood, um, just with all of the music that I was being, um, being shown through my family, 
my mom's taste, which was very different from my grandma's taste, different from my grandpa's taste. So, and and then school, like seeing what my friends were listening to and hearing radio stuff. So, um, just seeing what the possibilities were um, to perform mm -hmm. at the at the highest level. I think it planted the idea in my head that I. That's what I want to do. And I used to tell my grandma all the time that I wanted to be a triple threat. And I don't really remember where that word came from or where I got it. Maybe a show or something, a movie. As we were always watching a lot of musicals. Um, but I had a good idea of what it was that I wanted to do. And in school, I was paying attention. But I also knew that, like, I'm not going to really need geometry <laughs> with what I want to do. So um, as I just kept working from there, uh, I had one of my first kind of battles internally was that I wanted to do something that required me to be in front of so many people and be outgoing and unafraid and confident. But I was very shy mm. and very introverted and reserved and nervous until I got into my room and closed that door and then I was hairbrush performing, <laughs> you know yes hairbrush little straighteners whatever microphone I could find and just imitating dance moves and performing in my room as an only child so I kind of had to overcome that obstacle and I did that via dance first um so that was my foundation of performance is all movement based I want to get back to some of your musical influences, but but first you, you mentioned getting into performance first yeah. through dance. And I don't think people often realize how physical the act of singing is. And so having that dance background and that awareness of your body and that presence mm -hmm. in your body, how do you think that shapes the way you approach singing? The feeling I have when I'm dancing and singing versus just singing, it feels like because I have a dance background first, um, I can understand moving and breathing a certain way. And when I'm just singing, I think that I'm thinking a lot more than I am when I'm dancing and singing. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like my voice is more restricted and more... I guess it probably is from a mental standpoint. I'm just thinking a lot about what's going on and how to move it versus when I'm moving and singing, it just feels like more freedom. Mm. So I, I think I have a little bit of the opposite um, view as maybe a lot of singers just who would naturally maybe just stand and be as still as possible so the diaphragm is connected and there's no jolts and things. But for me, I feel like it helps my voice by doing another thing and not thinking so much about exactly the perfection of the vocal and just, like, having fun, Yeah, you know? Yeah. But I am fully aware now just being in vocal lessons. I, I, at first, when I was starting to sing, it was just a natural thing. And then when I got into the music industry, I started taking, you know, professional vocal lessons so I can understand the anatomy and, you know, exactly what's going on in your voice, what your tongue is doing, the triangle effect where you sing through your nose and pinching and all of the mathematics of it. <laughs> the geometry. The mechanics of it. <laughs> yes, the geom there's the geometry. You mentioned some of the, the musical influences, your mom your grandmother and your grandfather were, were listening to and how they, they varied. What was your mom playing for you? My mom, she was a young mom. So she was listening to like Uncle Luke 
Uh-huh. <laughs> she uh-huh. was listening to like um, Buju Bonton. She was listening to Elvis Crespo. Some of the artists that I remember catching my ear when she would put on those CDs. I'm like, oh, who is that one? So I remember those names most. Um, and then around the holidays, she was listening to, um, you know, Mariah, even Nat King Cole. Um, kind of random. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> a, that's a eclectic Kind of all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What about your grandparents? What were they playing for you? A lot of our experiences, because my mom was very young and she was a single mom, she had to work a lot. So my grandma became my bestie, my bestie slash babysitter, you mm-hmm. know. So we were watching a lot of musicals. So she introduced me to musicals like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang or Sound of Music or, you know, the classic Disney films, even watching the Dorothy Dandridge biopic where Holly Berry plays her and some of the music and that was influential to me. So she was playing that for visually where I would connect to a musical theater in a way. And then a lot of oldies, Mm -hmm. like Motown, um, and she would wake me up by singing Wake Up Little Susie. And then she would sing, there's a commercial I think it's from, must be from 60s or 70s, where she would sing Brush with new Ipana. I don't know what Ipana is, but she would she would <laughs> sing this song to me. Brush up, brush up, brush up, brush with new Ipana, and like to to brush my teeth. So it was like always like a musical day. Yeah. Um, and she sang herself, and she was more of an opera style singer. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, both my mom and grandma sang in church. And when it came to my grandpa, he was like smooth player. <laughs> But also a cowboy. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, so he's wearing cowboy boots, cowboy hat. He was like playing the saxophone, playing the harmonica, playing the bass, the keys. So instead of really listening to his musical taste, it was more so that he, I could hear him play his instruments. Mm-hmm. And also he had the pool of the family. So at his house, we'd have the pool parties where we would then play classics, Earth, Wind & Fire. I remember even Sade playing, Janet Jackson playing, just like very feel-good Sunday music vibes. And then at school, everyone was playing like TLC, like the classic, you know, 90s mix, Spice Girls, you know, pop and R&B. So music was kind of like, it, it could go anyway. <laughs> Well, I, I want to hear a track from Jaguar 2. This one's called How Does It Make You Feel? And it's nominated for the Best R&B Performance Grammy Award. I don't want you to put yourself into a genre, even though you're up for all of these R&B awards. When you think about your sound, how do you describe the music you make? I definitely feel like it has R&B. It has soul. There's a tiny bit of funk and experimental isms in there. But I feel like the heart of it is like R&B and soul. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Some of the biggest stars of our day got their start on the internet, and you were one of them. What role did MySpace play in your (laughs) early career? I was kind of doing my research as an artist and songwriter on who produced some of my favorite 
records and who wrote them. And because as a kid, you don't really think too much about it. You just listen and absorb and it becomes kind of a portal to certain memories and experiences. But when you get older, you're kind of like, okay, somebody snapped. <laughs> somebody did their thing on this. And who, who was it? Um, so in my research, I was looking up, you know, Michael Jackson. And one of my favorite songs is Rock My World, among so many others. But uh, Rodney Jerkins was responsible for the production. And LaShawn Daniels was responsible for the writing of that song. So on MySpace, I just added them as friends and I think as any young person would do trying to you know get anywhere and reach for the stars if you have access like that um you try it and so MySpace was kind of the first space where I feel like you could have that access um similarly to Instagram now and people can just follow and DM like imagine if Michael Jackson was alive right now I would definitely slide in his DMs you know like hey so uh (laughs) just in case but um so I added Rodney on MySpace and along with other producers, I believe maybe Pharrell, probably Timberland, um, other super producers. But two weeks after that, adding him on MySpace, I got a message from his page asking me to come audition to be in his girl group because I had three songs on my MySpace and I was already advertising myself as an artist on MySpace and had like a profile picture that I had done a photo shoot for Mm -hmm. so I was trying to market already and just get people's feedback and make it with even out of Sacramento to come to LA so this email really like catapulted my move to LA I was already working three jobs in efforts to save enough money to move to LA but this opportunity presented itself and made it happen a lot quicker than I thought was possible. How old were you at the um, time? I believe 18 or 19. Oh, so you were young. Ni- 19. Yeah. 19, yeah. So you get to LA and to go on this audition. And, and what happens? I do the audition. My mom is there with me. Um, it's like an all-day thing. There's a bunch of rounds. Rodney's there. LaShawn Daniels is there. So it's people that I'm <laughs> like, I had just, you know, been super enamored by and looked up to. And Lorianne Gibson was there teaching the choreography. Mm-hmm. I remember one thing about the audition was dancing just super hard because a part of the audition was a dance portion with her. And I scratched myself on my leg and I, my leg was bleeding, but I just kept going. And I remember Lorianne being like, that's right, honey, bleed for it. This is what you want to do. So it was like, oh my God, LA is so intense. But I love it, like, you know, just learning and absorbing things already. Um, so what ha- ended up happening was Rodney decided on two different groups because his idea was originally to make a pop group. Mm-hmm. So he ended up making a pop group, but also found these three girls that he really loved the idea of making an R&B group as well. So that's what became Purple Rain. It was me, um, Siobhan, and Toya. One from Cincinnati, one from New York, one from Sacramento, which was me. So they asked us to move to L.A., I believe within one or two weeks after that audition, just go pack your stuff and come back, move. So that's what happened. So that's what brought you to L.A. But you, you eventually found yourself working more on the production side of things yes. rather than performing. And you've had great success um, as a songwriter and producer. 
What was that period in your career like? Because you, you wanted to perform. Well, even back in Sacramento when I was working with local producers, we kind of modeled ourselves after Carrie Hilson and the Clutch. It was like three of us, and um, I saw that she was able to be this amazing songwriter and a beautiful woman, but also was able to have her own career. So I wanted that, and I wanted to be like Missy Elliott and be like Smokey Robinson and be like Babyface, where I had that duality. So coming to L.A., when I was in the girl group, I actually asked Rodney to please let me stay after our, our girl group rehearsal to just write songs because he always had songwriters in and out of the studio. And the girl group, after rehearsals and singing and recording, we would just go home. Um, so I asked if I could just stay and just try writing. So he gave me a chance. He gave me one of his his instrumentals, and that was like my first step to really prove you know, to a super producer that I was serious about writing. And I hadn't been writing even before the girl group and moving to L.A. as well. So it felt very familiar. I just think maybe my writing career introduced me to the world first because it became more successful first. But I don't know that I ever stopped being an artist. You know, I always was still pursuing dance, still trying to sing records well enough so that someone would keep me on them as a feature, still, you know, trying to make moves and and make relationships with producers and engineers and labels and everybody so that I can mix the worlds and get that duality that I want I wanted. But it's very difficult I think to make songwriting and artistry quote-unquote pop at the same exact time but I do think that this order was in God's plan and just perfectly mapped out for me I don't know that if I was a successful artist first before being a successful songwriter if I would have had as many great experiences as a songwriter because I probably would have just focused more on artistry alone just because as an artist I still can write songs so but as a songwriter it's just like it doesn't it's not all as all encompassing as being an artist mm-hmm. i guess being an artist and un, under that umbrella still would include songwriting for me mm-hmm. so i think it all happened the way it's supposed to yeah yes. well let's hear a bit from the very first jaguar album here's the title track Do Jaguar 1 and Jaguar 2 fit together? Are they in conversation with one another? Yes, they actually are. Some of the songs on Jaguar 2 were made within the same time period as songs in Jaguar 1. My original plan was to put out a three-part project. So Jaguar would have been, instead of two parts, it would have been three. And the idea was that they would complete themselves. So the very last song on Jaguar 1 would become the song right before the first song on Jaguar 2 and so on. So it's like it's almost like chapters. Mm-hmm. But being that there was a baby and a pandemic in between <laughs> Jaguar 1 and 2, <laughs> I felt like 
what I wanted to say and the reason why the reasons why I called my album Jaguar at all should be answered. Um, and the vision should be complete. So I thought that two parts were more um, in line with how I feel now. And why Jaguar? Speaking to the identity of just being a songwriter to some people, I felt that I was behind the bushes and behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. Similar to a Jaguar, when they exist in a jungle, you don't always see them, but you know that there's that's their habitat. And so you, it's not until the right moment that they pounce out of their comfort and attack their prey and they have a really strong bite when they do um when they do bite down so that's what I felt like was happening for me it's like I've always been here existing amongst the jungle that is the music industry but with this album and these two projects I've I'm biting down on what exactly that I've always wanted mm -hmm. and I'm here to stay and I always identify with the Jaguar in that way. I also really think that they're very like, the way that they walk is sexy. I'm referring to a black Jaguar, which is even more rare. And also talking about the color of my skin, just being a black woman in the music industry is a rarity. And operating in that comfort and that sex appeal and that focus that is in a Jaguar's eyes, having all of those elements and then relating that to the trajectory of my music career. Mm -hmm. Well, you you definitely pounced on Jaguar too. <laughs> you landed on seven <laughs> Grammy you. nominations, um, yeah. and you also have the legendary band Earth, Wind, and Fire featured on your track Hollywood, Ooh. and it's <laughs> yes. nominated for Best Traditional R and B Performance. Let's hear some of the song. Earth, Wind, and Fire. What what was that moment like for you? When you, I mean, there had to be a moment where you were like, "Oh my gosh, I'm working with Earth, Wind, and Fire." Yes, it's actually happened multiple times. One hearing that they were open to being featured on the project. Another time when I actually got into the room with them. Another time hearing the album come out and people's responses. Another time when the <laughs> the song is Grammy nominated. It's just really really special to me um earth wind and fire was part of the inspiration for the jaguar sound um and the feel of it and the reason why i love you know integrating horns so much is because of you know earth wind and fire's really amazing horn lines of course mine are slowed down and you know done differently but um just seeing that part of black music um and what it can feel like to people and how my family felt listening to Earth, Wind & Fire has all been, you know, informing my music and my project. And so just to have them on on the song just feels so, so special and so surreal. Not only are they open to it, they've been celebrating me and supporting me. And, you know, Verdine's sent me, you know, a Christmas arrangement. It's like, it feels like family now. Um, and so I'm just, I've just been really like pinching myself. I also, when I was working with Earth, Wind and Fire, when Verdine came in, he was about to put the music notes from his bass line in his Birkin bag. And I was like, 
can I just please, <laughs> can I take that? So I've gotten it laminated. It's just like wow. such a keepsake for me and I'm going to frame it and it's going to be something that I'm going to be able to show my grandchildren and make them think I'm cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you've worked with artists like Katrinata, Khalid, Lucky Day for your solo music. How does your background in songwriting and vocal production shape who you who you want to work with? As a songwriter, I'm fully aware of how things work behind the scenes and maybe how some collaborations come about. Um, I've been able to view it. And so some collaborations are, they feel, I guess, man-made. They're like, or label-made, I should say. Like, okay, let's put these two massive artists together and let's see how their fan base is supported and let's take it to the top. It's kind of a numbers game. And for my collaborations, it's really people that I truly am a fan of. They could have two followers. I don't care. Mm. <laughs> it's like most most about the music and the sonic and how our chemistry sounds together. And so that's how I determine my collaborations. I do want female collaborations. That's something that I haven't really had the opportunity to do on these um, two projects. But I'm excited to get together with the girls too um but I'm definitely picky in that way as far as just making sure that who I collaborate with is truly authentically like people I like and listen to and personalities and um the things they stand for all of it has to make sense Mm -hmm. I should mention that this isn't your first time being Grammy nominated you've received two other Grammy nominations for for your previous production work so you've got those nominations and you've got the ones for your solo project. How do you think through what it means to get a Grammy nod? How are you thinking through how awards fit into your definition of success? It's kind of interesting because it's it feels a bit twofold because I try to <laughs> psych myself out before the Grammys being like, you know what, even if you don't get nominated, it's still a great project. And But if you do get nominated, that's amazing. <laughs> you know, it's like incredible and the best thing in the world. So it's like you have to be okay with both results um, and also realize that it is it's not finite as a complete opinion-based, perspective-based accolade. But it also is so appreciated and special that your peers or people who do what you do in the Recording Academy and such a prestigious group of people see you and and place value in what you've done. And so it's like the cream of the crop um, kind of applauding you. And so it feels extra special, especially that the Grammys is it's a Recording Academy member award versus maybe fan awards, which are just as valuable, but it's just a different perspective. I feel extra special about <laughs> the number seven as well. I've been trying to, every, ever since the Grammy nominations, I've been obsessed with the number seven, just trying to manifest things. So like, if, like I've flown Southwest and I'm like, okay, you get to choose your own seat. I'm sitting in aisle seven, please. Thank you very much. <laughs> also, I learned that this year is, is the year of seven. It's a year of completion. And then I add my age together, and I was like, hey, I'm 34. That adds up to seven. <laughs> it's like everything has been a seven parade. So I'm just, it feels really special to me to get to this place in my life and, and be celebrated in this way. There's another really important number in your life, and that's, that's two. 
the age of your daughter Hazel. Yeah, yes. Who's also featured on the album in the song Hollywood, and in the song's nomination makes Hazel the youngest person ever to be nominated for a Grammy. That's crazy. What does it feel like to share that? I mean, she's not aware of it, of course. She's not just like Grammy no. Schmammy, but yeah. as a mom, you know that. Yeah. I mean, what does that feel like for you to share that success with her? It actually feels like God's way of applauding us as a family. When I got pregnant with Hazel, there was a lot of fear, not only because motherhood is scary as a, as a person, but even in, within my career, I didn't know what it meant. And there was a lot of opinions about what I should do about it, how I should go about it how scary it actually will be, and maybe how it is a bad career move. I think that this feels like the exclamation point at the end of a hard journey that God is like, you don't really know much. I got you. You know, The path that I've carved for you is unlike anyone else's, and no matter what people's opinions are, I'm going to show you that it's my plan. It's not y'all's plan. So... It feels really special and like an answer to that fear. It's like, be not afraid. Do what it is that feels natural to you. Do what feels amazing to you. And I got you. You can manifest and attract all of the things you want, no matter how, quote unquote, hard the circumstance is. If you give it time and you give it that focus and hard work, then things will return to you. And so that's kind of how I'm feeling, that she's involved in the biggest moment of my career, which you know, in my opinion, as a 19-year-old girl moving to L.A., I was like, oh, yeah, by 22, 23, I'm out of here, you know? <laughs> but I'm 34 now, yeah. still being nominated for Best New Artist, and so it just, it's really hard to describe, you know? I'm curious, you've been very open about dealing with postpartum depression and songwriting yes. during that. How did postpartum depression affect your music, and how did music affect you during that experience? Well, one thing pregnancy did physically to me is change my voice. So there were some things that were hard to sing in the same way. It almost felt kind of like an ego death and a death to the Victoria as an artist and as a person that existed before pregnancy. And it was in addition to a pandemic as well. So it's like in addition to not really knowing your body anymore, you kind of don't know the world anymore and how we're operating, how things will move forward. So I feel almost like I had a double depression because the state of the world plus the state of my being, um, there's so many elements of you that you can't control, even the outcome of a childbirth. You know, my daughter going to NICU, the fact that I wanted to have a natural birth, but I ended up having an emergency C-section. It's like so, so much of the unknown, even though you plan daily to do it a certain way, can be completely different. And so dealing with that, coming into the studio while breastfeeding, but also trying to make cool songs, mm. <laughs> was a really interesting juxtaposition. And I was kind of like, what do I have to write about? I feel cut open. I feel so different. I feel unlike myself and um, I don't know that I want to share that or that people want to hear that from me. It's like, you know, is that relatable? And so I was analyzing way too much. And the moment that I was just like, you know what? Let me write as if I do feel confident. Let me write from a place that I want to be at versus a place that I'm at. 
and that became On My Mama. Yeah, well, let's listen to that. This is On My Mama. It's up for Best R&B Song and Record of the Year. I put that on my mama. Hearing that context of writing from the place you want it to be, not necessarily mm-hmm. the place you were feeling, it puts that song into a different space for me. Because this is the kind of song I play when I'm trying to, <laughs> when my friends have called me like, let's go out. And I'm yes. like, y'all, it's 10 o'clock. I, I'm, <laughs> right. I'm in bed. Like, this is the song I play to make me <laughs> convince myself that it's a good idea to head out. Yeah. And so that, you know, Putting that also within the context of the, of the Jaguar, like it sounds like you've gone through this period of redefining who you are at this stage of your life. So how much yeah. of Victoria pre-pregnancy, Victoria pre-pandemic, um, survived that experience and is still a part of Victoria today? Quite a lot of Victoria pre-pandemic and pregnancy is there. I think in addition to being a Jaguar, I'm a Taurus Jaguar. So um, the determination and and some people like to look at it as being stubborn and bullheaded, but in my eyes, I would say we're determined. (laughs) And so the determination outlasted the postpartum. The determination outlasted all of the doubts and the fear that went into being pregnant and, and giving birth and being a great mom. Um, And I still hang on to that determination as I'm, also very determined to make the the work-life balance make sense, determined to inspire my daughter and make the best example for her so that she could see this story. If you zoom out, even from 2009, the Victoria who moved to L.A. to pursue a dream, and no matter how long that road was, where she got, you know, so just kind of taking a bird's eye view of the story, but also being able to zoom into some of those elements and realize how inspirational she was and integral she was in making me more responsible Mm. and making me fully aware of that responsibility and time management and work-life balance. Before the pandemic, I really, there wasn't life. There wasn't that much life. It was just work, but but it's because I love what I do. And so it's hard being the actual product and the brand because then you become what's being marketed and your life is so intertwined with your work. Um, but to answer your question, I <laughs> suppose, um, yes, the, the determined Victoria still exists. Yeah. I, I noticed that as like a continued theme from even childhood. My mom would tell me no to something. It's like... I kind of find a way, <laughs> find it's a like, way. No, it's a negotiation. That's weird. Right. Yes, exactly. I want to make sure to listen to one more song um, from Jaguar 2. This one's called Stop. Stop asking me for money, get your own. I barely even just got on route. I look like a treat to you. Well, leave me alone if I do. And take this as you fair warning. Next time you're in need of something, don't go I was listening to this song, and there was a point about a third of the way in when I just laughed out loud. <laughs> it's it's so clever. The lyrics are 
funny. And you play with with language and tempo, and it's just a lot of fun. How how are you thinking through your your lyric writing process and and finding those places where you can inject a wink or you yeah. know a little bit of a of a joke? Yeah, you know what? It's really funny because this song in particular. D Mile and I believe maybe Tim Subi was in the room and Soundtrack I believe they were working on something completely different and I, when I'm writing I'm, I like to pace I guess it just makes ideas happen more fluidly mm-hmm. for some reason so I was pacing in the back of the studio and I was coming up with the lyrics to the pre-hook I thought it was a hook at the time and I said it to my manager and just like as like a as a sentence and she started laughing and um I just really love comedy if I'm watching a movie I'm not watching anything scary don't ask I will watch <laughs> comedy because it's like a, it's escapism and something um something about the ability to for someone to make you laugh it takes you right out of whatever darkness that you're in instantly and it's just like Laughing with people is amazing. Laughing by yourself if you're watching something that funny is amazing. And so why not put it in music? Um, Because we're absorbing it so often. And we deserve a laugh in the car when we're Mm -hmm. listening to music, when we can't watch a show. And I also really love things like SNL. I love skits. And so it felt very like reminiscent of those worlds, but also wanting it to sound so musical and like almost... Um, Jackson 5 influenced and soul influenced and have some really cool changes that musicians would appreciate. So all of that wrapped up and just exploring with D-Mile and just ended up being what we have as stop. So it made me so happy that you said you laughed out loud. I'm like, yes! <laughs> yes! Uh, well, this is also it. where I heard the influence of of the musicals you you listen yeah. to and watch when you were yeah. a kid because the, there's so much humor often in these musicals and you know and in, in, in sneaky lyrics and the you know the rhythmic the way they play with the rhythm and the and so it made sense to me I said ah I hear it I hear it in this <laughs> yeah. song I hear it in this song you know I'm as I've been listening to you and and you mentioned your experience in high school you went to a performing arts high school Yes. And I had some really influential teachers when I was growing up in Detroit. Did did you have those those teachers who really poured into you who you think yes. about now? Yes, I do. My high school dance teacher named Miss Hobgood. She was just this little short lady with naturally curly hair that like really was very into yoga and like Zen and the color purple. Her favorite color was purple. And she just taught me so much um, about performance. Um, We would have a yearly show um, in this dance company called Universal Rhythm. And so I learned, you know, what upstage and downstage is, what the wings are, like all of the lingo that I had no idea about before. I'm like, yo, so you just go on stage and do your thing. But there's so much more in learning about lighting and doing my senior project as a show and all of the elements that it takes to pull the show together still have influence on everything that I'm doing today. And she believed in me even when there was some a bit of stubborn moments. You know, you start to act up in high school a little bit. 
it. You buck just a little, and she was there to keep me calm and zen, and all of the like the core of calmness and kind of having a place to call home mentally. Um, where you can just revisit in your mind and remain calm. I feel like I learned that from her. As my mom, I feel like at the time, she just thought that all that stuff was kind of kooky. She was like, girl, you better pray. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, which obviously is is definitely true as well, but there's other tools to use even as far as like lavender. And I know my mom understands it now um, more so than she did then, but... I would say that the beginning of those types of thoughts happened with my high school teacher, Ms. Hopgood. So you've got seven Grammy nominations. You've got this it's so project. Crazy that's, every I time. know. <laughs> oh my god! I, I always hesitate to ask people what's next for them, but you said you have you have a vision for yeah. for your life and and where you want to go from here. What what is that vision? Yes. Well, it's funny you say you don't like to ask what's next because I have been battling with this myself, asking myself what to do now. I'm like, well, what do you, you know, how do you keep this ball rolling? But also just remain in the moment and grateful and present because I know that in my Victoria in the past wanted, had envisioned this particular moment in life for herself then and so now that I'm here I want to like absorb it all and really feel it and be in the moment but also it's hard for me not to plan mm-hmm. <laughs> plan for what the for the future so I do see in the future another album with a different sonic scape and more exploration so I can't wait to get back into the studio my schedule has been kind of pulling me away from it more than I've ever experienced before so I'm trying to get used to you know the life where I have to Actually, you know, I still have to promote the work that I've done, but I'm already ready to go dig more and and like make more things and get back to the playground part of it. Um, So I definitely want another album to be made. I want to tour again and see more people. And I want to take my pen kind of in new directions. I want to write a children's book. I want to write scripts. I want to write songs for like scoring songs for a film where I get to watch what happens in the film and then, you know, work from there. Like, just a different way, because usually how I work now is I do the song and then make the visual. So just trying it the opposite way could be really, really fun. And also family-wise, just making sure I'm teaching Hazel so that she's she feels taken care of and warm and appreciated and expose her to all of the options. You know, it's like... I'm holding out a a whole color palette for her where she gets to pick and choose and mix colors and be fluid creatively. So I'm I'm trying to, you know, keep the color palette open for her. I know that she loves music, but who knows? She could be like Picasso, you know? (laughs) So um, I, it's a big priority for me uh, is family as well, along with all of the music accolades to just keep the momentum going and the, keep climbing up the hill, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's a beautiful vision, Victoria. And um, thank you. I'm excited to see what happens next for you. Thank you so much and best of luck thank at you. the Grammys. Thank you so much. All right. Take good care. We'll be rooting for you. Okay. Thank you so much. We'll talk soon. That was my conversation with Grammy nominated singer, songwriter, and producer Victoria Monet. She joined me earlier. Her latest album, Jaguar 2, is out now. It's up for seven Grammys. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. 
I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Lisa, in collaboration with West Elm. Discover the new natural hybrid mattress, expertly crafted from natural latex and certified safe foams, designed with your health and the planet in mind. Visit leesa.com to learn more. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR.